From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Avalanches kill more people in Colorado than in any other state. One backcountry skier from Telluride nearly became a part of that statistic. The snow is so heavy and wet that my arms were trapped behind me the whole time I was being carried down the slope. I was probably about five feet deep, fully buried, and, you know, thousands of pounds of snow on top of me. I couldn't move a finger. Today, his survival story and reflections about choices. Then we speak with the Pikes Peak Poet Laureate. Poetry, I might say, is my first language. It's the way that I understand most things. And I think metaphor is this catalyst for change. Metaphor can help people understand things that can be difficult in conversation. Plus, a musical homecoming for Jill Sobule. I donated my beat-up car to Colorado Public Radio. Because I was super attached to it. When it was time to get rid of it, it was just nice to know that it went to CPR. All I had to do was fill out a form online. Somebody gave me a call, and they came and picked it up. Our family was excited, one, to get the car off the street, and two, that it went to a good place. It kind of felt like I was giving back and saying thank you, like paying it back, but also paying it forward at the same time. If you have a car to donate, start the process at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Avalanches kill more people in Colorado than in any other state, an average of six a year. So far this winter, at least four people have died, and Scott Binge came close to being the fifth. The experienced backcountry skier was buried by an avalanche and likely only survived because of the quick actions of others around him. CPR's Western Slope reporter Stina Sieg has his extraordinary story. It was warm the morning of New Year's Eve, unseasonably warm, when Scott Benj left his home in Telluride. I think one of the main mistakes I individually made was not putting enough stock in that warming trend. A trend that had made the snow much less stable. More than a foot had fallen in the last 24 hours. But Scott had already planned to meet a buddy at a popular backcountry skiing area in nearby Ophir, a tiny former mining town deep in the mountains. It's jaw-dropping beauty. But not without its risks. The avalanche danger all year had been considerable, if not higher, and we were definitely well aware of that and well aware of the areas that we wanted to stay away from that day and kind of put a loose plan together on what we wanted to avoid. Scott's a skier with Wagner Custom Skis out of Telluride. Kane Scheidegger is a photographer who works with the company and was with Scott to take a few photos. They talked about the slope angle and conditions, Both felt comfortable moving forward. And we stopped two times just to do a a quick single turn type photograph. And after we had shot the second time, we uh, put the camera away and and kind of started uh, continuing down. Uh, I followed Scott into this kind of micro terrain that we weren't so familiar with and we're trying to kind of reassess at that point. It was definitely leading to an area we knew we didn't want to go to, but we thought we could traverse back without getting ourselves into that terrain. So, you know, we kind of ended up in a little micro-terrain area um, that we did not plan on skiing that morning to kind of get fresh tracks. 
it's a lot steeper than the terrain that we wanted to ski on that given day with the avalanche conditions. It's just something that is notoriously slides and there's been a lot of accidents in before. Kind of getting into a little bit of micro terrain that we weren't as familiar with was probably a mistake as well. Scott watched his cane skied down first. Hugged the tree line and um, was able to safety up into the trees. And when I say safety, I mean he was able to ski to a point to where, you know, if something did slide above him once I skied, he was in a, a, a safe position so that he would not have been caught as well. So then once he did reach that safety, he radioed up to me um, saying that he was safe. And that's when I dropped. A matter of, you know, three or four seconds later, I hear the air actually come out of the snowpack as, as that, that entire layer of snow whoomps to the ground. Um, and it almost sounds like thunder. Probably on my third or fourth turn, skiing the same lines that line that he did, that's when the um, avalanche broke underneath my skis and knocked me off my feet and uh, buried, me to, buried me immediately. My big concern was is this avalanche lasted for probably, I don't know, 30, 45 seconds, but I never saw Scott go by me. Yeah, so I mean, once the avalanche broke and I was buried, I was carried probably, I think we estimated 700 feet down the slope. You know, the only thing I was thinking was trying to get my hands up in front of my face to create an air pocket. Um, because once you're buried, having that little bit of air pocket can, you know, prolong your survival time by a couple of minutes. Unfortunately, I was not able to do that. The snow was so heavy and wet that my arms were trapped behind me the whole time I was being carried down the slope. I was probably about five feet deep, fully buried, and, you know, thousands of pounds of snow on top of me. I couldn't move a finger. I mean, I couldn't move anything. It's always been one of my biggest nightmares, and yes, I've thought about it a lot. And I can tell you it's much scarier living through that than you can ever imagine. It was more more of a calm more of a calm time than it was panic because I was just trying to stay calm, not scream or you know get my heart rate up or anything like that because at that time it was all just relying on my partners and their abilities to save my life at that point. And at that moment, the only person who knew something might be terribly wrong was Kane. I radioed him on our radios, and there was no response. I think I was awake for 20 to 30 seconds until I um, passed out. My, my airway was completely chalked with snow. So at that point, I go into a search mode um, with my beacon. You can either be transmitting your signal or searching for a signal. And I just kind of had some time to think that that was it. And, um, you know, I, I really felt that I was not going to make it, that I was going to die right there. So, you know, I thought about my mom and my dog and my fiance. In an avalanche burial scenario, you have, you know, 10 to 15 minutes at the most to recover somebody. I just continued down until I got to almost the bottom of the avalanche and then I picked up a signal and I was able to work through that signal fairly quickly and was able to do a pinpoint on the, the avalanche transceiver to about 1.5 meters, I think, um, which is about five feet, five, six feet. And 
Then I uh, got a probe out. So an avalanche probe is a, is a big, long stick um, that you push down into the snow to see, because um, he was fully buried, so there was no visual, there was no visual aid of finding him. Um, so the probe, I probe around at the lowest signal that I received on my transceiver um, until I can poke something that I feel is solid or a person. And at that point, you leave the probe in, and then you start digging downhill from that point. Like Scott, Kane had done a lot of avalanche education and practice, and those skills kicked in. So I, I start digging as quickly as possible, and then I actually look up the avalanche path while I'm digging, and Seamus is maybe 200 feet above me. Another skier on the mountain that day. Seamus Croke who immediately started digging too. People can hear you under the snow, so we're screaming at Scott before we you know, even got him out of there, even though I didn't know he was, he was unconscious. When you showed up, we had just exposed his, one of his arms. He's like, yeah, it's like his hand jacket. And I, I said, I see his jacket, I've got his jacket. We're clearing his airway, digging snow out of his mouth. I would say we were both probably extremely relieved once we cleared you cleared his airway and he took this really kind of deep gurgly labored breath but Kane and Seamus could see Scott was still in danger he continued to be I would say unresponsive for probably four or five more minutes during the excavation process until he actually did open his eyes and started to kind of come back to by that point, many backcountry skiers were standing around Scott, helping, hoping. I, I, you know, I was going in and out of things, and it was I was really, I could not get warmed up, and they were just taking turns trying to warm me up with different articles of clothing, an emergency blanket. That's kind of my first memory is, you know, I came to it, and there was probably 12 people there, Um at the rescue site at that point, and I remember just looking up at the slide, and I just couldn't believe it. We asked him if he knew what day it was, if he knew what his name was, things like that, and, and we knew that he was starting to, um, things were starting to fire up in his head that he was that he was okay, and asked him if he was hurt anywhere, if he could, if he felt like his legs were okay, if his arms were okay. Um, he continued to say that he was feeling, you know, not, not any pain anywhere. At that point, we started to um, call off the search and rescue because we were, he was showing signs that he was actually going to be able to physically ski out on his own two feet, which I think is amazing. Yeah, the ski out. I mean, I was just had so much adrenaline pumping through my body and it was more just disbelief that that had just happened. I still wasn't cognitively all there I mean I was able to ski but you know had a convoy of people around me kind of just making sure I was you know operating properly Scott doesn't remember much of skiing back but he does remember what he felt guilt and embarrassment you know that I made a decision that led to this and I felt that for some time the grieving period was several weeks long still is and you know when I think about it it's just the amount of things that went right the level-headedness of Kane individually Seamus individually and then all of the other people recreating in the area at that time you know really saved my life 
two weeks later, Scott returned to that area, to a safe spot where he could view the place he almost died. Kind of looking at the terrain really made my stomach turn and was very emotional. He brought along Seamus, who says it's important and admirable that Scott wants to talk about this. You know, that's not something that's easy. And it's changing that narrative of saying like, hey, you messed up to like, why would you do that? You're so stupid to being like, hey, like everybody makes mistakes. This turned out really well. How can we, how can the whole community benefit and learn from that? And Kane says that learning has already begun in the small, dedicated community of locals who love the backcountry and are experienced exploring it. We all, you know, talk about the scenario and, and how the rescue went and, you know, how the teamwork was critical. And it's just so important that People practice every year with their beacons, their probes, their shovels, their, their companion rescue techniques because it can make the difference between life and death, for sure. The mountains are a, they're big and unforgiving and they need to be respected. You know, Ultimately, the mountains call the shots, I think. Um, so it's important to listen to them. Everyone who was there that day carries this experience with them but Scott most of all. He remembers how emotional it was to describe it to the people he cares most about. I mean, just telling everyone how much I love them and how much they mean to me, because, you know, it was very... It was almost never again. We're pretty isolated down here, and all we have is each other. And, you know, stuff like this happens more frequent than we want it to, so people understand the the toll it takes and uh, the support's just been so appreciated and pretty incredible. Backcountry skiing is dangerous, Scott says, but there's no substitute for it. Skiing powder with friends in remote, gorgeous places. The things that I get out of backcountry skiing and and recreating in the backcountry is... Uh, you know, more than most things in life. So Scott will keep doing this thing he loves, just more cautiously than before. He recently returned from skiing in Wyoming, a six-day hut trip in the Grand Tetons. In Telluride, I'm Stina Sieg, CPR News. As Black History Month 2023 comes to a close, we checked in with the Poet Laureate of Pikes Peak, Ashley Cornelius says Black lives and Black art should be celebrated year-round. She organized and hosted a series of events this month in Colorado Springs, including a poetry open mic and trivia event. She recently spoke with my colleague, Haley Sanchez. Welcome, Ashley. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Why is it important to put on an event like this, and what do you hope to accomplish? I think it's really important to put these events on because sometimes you can feel like you don't belong, especially in Colorado Springs. And so events like this show that we have always existed here, that we have businesses, that we're talented, that we're artists, and I think we thrive in community. So to see each other reflected, buying cupcakes, engaging on the open mic, listening to stories shows us that we are here and that we get to thrive and celebrate ourselves. And I really want people to see that Colorado Springs is full of beautiful black people and always has, and that you can buy wares from us. You can hear our poetry. You can engage with us in all different types of ways. 
Poetry is obviously something that you're no stranger to. Describe the piece that you read today. The piece that I read today was inspired by the Carter Payne Chapel, which is a historical site here in Colorado Springs. It was the first black church um, back in the day uh, when this city was being founded. There were not churches that black people could go to. Um, and so the Carter brothers started by bringing people into their homes for church and then created this beautiful brick building. And it was a place of comfort and safety. And so I did an ode to this black church. Black churches have always been the site of community and food distribution and where you meet your neighbors and wanted to honor the fact that when we weren't allowed in spaces, when blackness and melanin was um, disrespected, we found a way to each other. And that was through this uh, church, the Carter Payne Chapel. Share your poem with us. Absolutely. So this piece is called An Ode to a Black Church. How many lies have you saved? Become home and hideout, sanctuary after a week of the world trying to take your spirit, trying to convince you this city wasn't built for us. Sunday, as a reset, as a catalyst for renewed resilience, a place of holiness where God looks like us, created us in his image, a congregation of beautiful black people of Colorado Springs. This chapel was a sacred space where we could gather as free people as God's people, where prayers collected at the top of the church and escaped to the heavens when the doors let out. Bodies bouncing and swaying, praising and worshiping. Hallelujah and amen serve as a siren song to call home those looking for belonging. Even before there was donated land from General Palmer and Bear Creek Brick, church was where two or more are gathered in his midst and were blessed. In homes was the only place to convene when other churches didn't recognize melanin as a gift of divinity, wouldn't allow us to darken their steps. But supremacy has never stopped the black community for caring for each other, for practicing ritual and religion. The Carter brothers opened their residence and made space for others to feel at home, to feel saved. Black churches have always been spaces of our own, centralizing the black community, sites of activism and leadership, food distribution, housing, filling community needs. I know the Carter Payne Chapel has saved lives, created safe havens so blackness could breathe and thrive for generations to come, for generations to know they have always been welcome. And when the time came for the transition out of spirituality, the structure will always be a landmark of the first black church in Colorado Springs, a legacy of black history. Thank you so much. It's really beautiful. Uh, sanctuary after a week of the world trying to take your spirit. That's really, really powerful. Describe what the importance is of the faith community to the black community and why it's important to have a space specifically for that community. Religion and ritual has always been a huge part. It was things that were taken away during enslavement. It was a way for people to convene. And so for for such a long time, that was where you saw other black people. That's where you got to like be yourself and be in connection. And I think spirituality has always been centered, whether that is Christianity or Catholicism or um, other like African practices. We have always found ourselves in ritual. And I think there is a community, a, a communing with ancestral connections that makes it possible. And often when there was no place to go, when there was segregation, when there was intense racism, the church was the safe haven. The trivia at the beginning of your reading, you talked about who are the Carter brothers and what is the importance of this church. Were you surprised at all that the crowd 
didn't really know <laughs> the significance? No, I think, I mean, I didn't really know either, to be honest. I got to do an incredible Black History Month lecture with the Pioneers Museum and so did a ton of research and created poems about history, but we don't really learn about it. I think we learn about Black history in a really, like, macro level. Rosa Parks, Dr. King, Malcolm X, like, all of these big figures. And sometimes we can forget that there's Black history here in Colorado Springs, in Pueblo, in Manitou. Um, and so I think it takes events like this and artists and teachers to remind people there's so much incredible stuff that has happened here and to learn about it. What does poetry mean to you and why is it an effective art form when you're discussing your identity? Yeah, poetry, I might say, is my first language. It's the way that I understand most things. And I think metaphor is this catalyst for change. People might not understand my experiences as a black, fat, queer woman, but they might understand the metaphor of the sun rising and how that feels to be inspired by the colors, right? People are like, I get that. I'm like, that's what it feels to be like a black woman. Like, that's the happiness and joy I feel about my black identity. And so metaphor can help people understand things that can be difficult in conversation. Um, and I also believe poetry is a conversation with yourself. So as much as it is about community, we ourselves can learn about what's happening for us, how we understand the world through the poetry. And uh, it is just this powerful modality for healing. And I think we all speak in, you know, rhyme and rhythm and we have all of these colloquialisms and it's all poetry. We just got to put those together <laughs> and say it on a stage and we're there. But I think it's just the way that we often talk already about important things is through poetry and metaphor. There was a handful of people who spoke, and I think one theme that I noticed in each poem, each person talked about like some of the violence that they have experienced or that someone in their community has experienced. Were you surprised by that? No, I think it's... That's why I think these spaces are important, because we witness the violence. Maybe it happened to us. We see it on the news, certainly, all of the time. But there's no place to talk about it, because we're labeled angry or aggressive, or that's not the time. And so we get to create spaces where it is exactly the time, where you get to name the pain, the hurt, the violence, as well as the joy. But we're all seeing it. We're holding it in our bodies. And we often don't get safe spaces to name it, where people are like, yeah, I totally get that. And I know that it's not because you're an angry person. I know it's not because of this. It's literally what it feels like to be a part of a marginalized community is to witness the violence against you. Um, and we don't talk about it. And it's real and it's true. And I'm so grateful people felt comfortable to say, hey, this is what's happening in my community. And I have a place to say it and for people to know it and validate. Tell me about some of the Black and African-American authors who inspire you. Yeah, I think first and foremost is Audre Lorde, just like such a incredible woman um, who focused on intersectionality. Um, and her essay, The Uses of the Erotic, is like one of my favorites of how we take back our power, especially as women and femme-identified folks. Um, I love Langston Hughes. I love Amanda Gorman, who is the Youth Poet Laureate right now. Um, also Lucille Clifton, another incredible black woman um, poet. And so I think having other black people and women and folks who share my identity writing has been super inspirational for me. And I hope that one day I can also be that <laughs> for other people. But um, I really think that uh, we have to capture our words because they have helped me becoming who I am as a poet. And I think that's the dividends I want to give back. And there were a lot of poets, too, here locally in Colorado Springs. What's it like to work with them and be around that community? 
Oh, it's amazing. I think, you know, iron sharpens iron, as they say. And so being around all these incredible poets and hearing how they see the world and their techniques has been cool. A couple years ago, we formed a, a black collective called Hot Comb, where it was all black artists coming together to um, edit each other's work and to perform together. And so building collectives like that, I became a better poet. I got to see how other people understand metaphor and learn. And so I think having a community means that like, yeah, this is actually one, a profession, something that I love to do. And like, there are other people who are just as jazzed about poetry. Um, and again, creates opportunities for other people who are like, oh, I kind of like poetry or this sounds cool. It's like, yeah, come join us. Like it's, it's family. It's sort of like the poem again. It's like, how do we create sanctuary and safe spaces sometimes that's through religion sometimes it's not sometimes that's through poetry or art um, but I think that's how we survive is in community anything else that you wanted to mention black history is all the time it's all year long in that there's living black history I always say like me having this interview is black history me laughing with like my partner like all the things that we do as black people adds to the history and so it doesn't matter how big or small your accomplishments are you are contributing to black history and that's beautiful and I hope that people go to events like ours or you know any other events across February and the rest of the year to see that blackness is beautiful there's joy there's love there is pain and there are a lot of really big things we have to deal with and we're here we're thriving and we have always existed thank you so much for letting me come into the space and for talking with me absolutely thank you Ashley Cornelius is the Poet Laureate for the Pikes Peak region. She spoke with my colleague, Haley Sanchez. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. In Colorado's subalpine areas, you might spot a greenish-gray toad hanging out in shallow waters, sporting a white stripe on its back. Each boreal toad is further distinguished by its own belly pattern, as unique as a fingerprint. You won't hear the boreal toad croak, as it doesn't have the vocal organ to make that sound, but you might hear this delicate chirp. Instead of drinking, the toad absorbs water through a patch on its skin, and that can be infected by a fungus that's depleting amphibian populations worldwide. The boreal toad was once common in the southern Rocky Mountains, but has declined drastically over the past few decades. A hundred toads are now in the Denver Zoo's care in a conservation effort to restore the animal in the Southern Rockies. With thanks to biologist Danita Weeks, this is a Colorado Postcard from Colorado Public Radio with the support of Coble & Company. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. There's a saying, never get between a mama bear and her cubs. Well, Shirley Smith can relate and she's living proof that it's true. The former wife of former NBA star J.R. Smith delivered her daughter at just 21 weeks, setting off a month-long emotional journey. Many of the mental health challenges she's faced in her life unfolded here in Colorado, while her husband was making moves on the basketball court as a Denver Nugget. Shirley Smith recounts it all in vivid detail in her book, Mama Bear, One Black Mother's Fight for Her Child's Life and Her Own. I spoke with her in August after she'd visited Denver to share her story at an event to raise awareness about mental health challenges in the Black community. Shirley, welcome to Colorado Matters. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. In this memoir, you recall giving birth to a one-pound miracle baby. 
quote, I had to rely on God. Can you give us a sense of what happened? Well, I'm sure as you can imagine, it's um, it's no quick snapshot <laughs> when you're in this situation um, of having a premature baby, if I could be even more specific, a micro preemie. Um, Dakota was born five months early hmm. at 21 weeks and zero days. I barely had a stomach when I had her. Wow. And she was in the hospital for 141 days. Um, now, coming from having my oldest daughter at the time was eight years old. She was full term. Um, my husband at the time was playing for the Cavaliers and we were looking to go to the championship. And it was just highlights was going on all around our lives. So when I got rushed to the hospital, the last thing I was thinking that was that I was getting ready to give birth to Dakota. Period. I was like, this is not happening. But guess what? Shirley quickly realized that she is not exempt and life happened in that moment. So no matter all of the highlights that's going on around you, none of us are exempt to go through real life issues and trauma. And that was my reality within that moment and all the way up to days to come up until now. It literally was foreign to me. Do you understand that I'm saying five years ago, I had no clue what a premature birth was, even further, a micro preemie. So when they were talking to me and communicating with me, you're having this baby early. She's going to be a micro preemie, premature. I'm, I'm looking like, what are you talking about? I can't comprehend. I don't even know what it is. Yeah. So just to cut dry from that, she was in the hospital for 141 days of a roller coaster. She went through um, surgeries. She had to be on someone else's breast milk that I talk about in my book in order for her to gain her first real pound. Wow. Um, it just was so much. Like I said, it's, it's variations that is never like a quick snippet of the story because it just didn't happen like that. But if I wanted to give you key pointers of the part of my journey, that was the beginning of it. And just to be clear, your daughter, Dakota, is one of the youngest premature babies to ever survive. How does that feel to hear that after all that you experienced? Um, well, initially, when I first had her, she was the youngest. And now to hear that she's amongst one of the youngest is just like, what the, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, like what, you know, what I want to say like what? And it slowly transitioned into, wow, I'm that special to have such a dominant and prominent miracle in my life. Mm -hmm. So initially, it's like you don't care. You could give a, a rat's butt that she's she's on Wikipedia and you could I could care less. I don't care because I'm going through the trauma and I'm going through getting through the process. I'm going through the roller coaster of just wanting my child to, to survive. But slowly, as the years passed, it's turned into, wow, God, you see me fit to raise such a gift. And your book is about, of course, mental health and your own struggles and challenges. But you also use this book to heighten the awareness about the crisis of Black maternal and infant health. And so what is it that you want people to know about that? First and foremost, what I'm learning on my own personal journey is if each one can teach one, 
And even if it's just one, we can make some sort of a stamp, some sort of an imprint and some sort of a difference within our world. Um, Black maternal health is serious. I grew up um, in the inner city in poverty, North New Jersey. Um, my mom was addicted to crack cocaine. So in the 90s, when that was just the happening thing and a thing to do, myself and my siblings suffered a great deal even to the point of lacking food, lacking health, missing school. And all of that played a role on my mental stability, on my mental growth, on my mental health, which I know correlated to me having stressors and trauma decades later, having my daughter early, if that makes sense. What I will say is in these communities, because I'm African-American, in these communities, we don't have access like everyone else due to Whole Foods or to prominent healthcare or things that will make a difference and reshape our lives growing up. So we end up suffering and it becomes a generational thing and it becomes a habit and it becomes the norm and it's not okay and we carry it and we carry it and we carry it and we suffer in silence. So the purpose of Mama Bear is to not only tell my story so people can look at me and say, hey, she's relatable. She's transparent. She's me. I'm her. She's me. But to see on the other side that if I can get through it, so can you. And that's what we need more of. Your book has been described as brave, compelling, provocative. And that, of course, was from Gabrielle Union Wade, the actress and also wife of NBA star Dwayne Wade. And you talked a lot about your challenges growing up, what that was like dealing with, you know, stress and poverty and grief and trauma. Mm -hmm. What do we learn in the book about your own personal struggle with mental health? Yeah, I suffered in silence. I became an introvert. I felt like I did not have a voice. I felt like I did not realize up until two years ago that, I was suffering from a core wound and I've been doing a lot of dissecting on core wounds because that's something else that we suffer from. Um, I felt like I didn't matter. So for my mental stability, it was unstable because my mom left me. She went on binges. So I didn't matter. My father, he was never around because I didn't matter. Oh, the guy who I thought was my father, I found out at the age of 25, he wasn't my real father because I didn't matter. So I went through all of these things as, a, shoot, I was eight years old when it all started. So from eight years old up until three years ago, I'm about to be 38, <laughs> mentally I suffered because I'm, I'm in a ripple and I'm in a rabbit hole of living from the aspect of what I saw living off of instinct, living off of survival mode, living off of doing for others before I even take care of myself. Self-care, what's that? Self-love, does that exist? So all of these things that are planted on us mentally, within us mentally, um, they leave a stain. And for lack of better terms, they drag us through the mud until we can wake up one day to say, hey, this is not okay. And that's what I'm here to do through my nonprofit, my Coda Bear, where we service families within the NICU. I'm here to stand and say, hey, guys, it's not OK. I'm here to help. Through dropping jewels, I help young women with self-esteem, self-love, teenagers to stand and say, hey, I'm here to help you because it's not OK. 
How do you think what you experienced, how do you feel that connects with overall how many people of color, particularly African-Americans and African-American women, the struggles that they have with mental health in our society? I kind of feel like you ever heard of the um, the statement P-O-M-E? Hmm, no. P-O-M-E, what I learned growing up is you become a product of your environment. So P-O-M-E, I'm a product of my environment. So what I've learned and how I know I am relatable to other women within the African-American community is because we learn to lean on each other. So when I was talking about the survival mode or the survival instincts within our community, we lean on one another because we feel like this is all we have because we don't know if we happen to the outside world, which may be other races, other um, cultures, stuff like that, if we will truly get the help that we need. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about systemic racism and even going back to our ancestors and slavery, we're standing on the backs of them. And to take it even one step deeper, what I'm what I'm recognizing and uncovering is the fact that our parents and our grandparents are only teaching us or they only taught us what they knew. So if you could sit and think about that, you'll understand how far back this goes. So we have a lot of work to do and I'm only just one person. So that's why I'm saying if each one teach one, we can stand and be a force to be reckoned with when it comes to mental health and helping each other and pulling our sisters and brothers up and just saying, hey, I care about your mind. How is your heart? You understand what I'm saying? Like, it's not about the visual or the outside. How's your heart? How's your head? You know? So it, it goes back deep. It really, really does. And um, it's a lot of layers that need to be pulled back. But I know I'm relatable because I've been there. I've done that. I'm still in it. I'm still healing. And I've gone through so many things in my life <laughs> that I feel like I can touch on any subject or be relatable to any matter or situation when it comes to um stressors, prematurity, um, in a limelight of celebrityism when you have a husband that, I mean, you, you say it in some way, shape or form. I feel like I can touch it to be of some sort of help. Most people look at uh, from the outside say, Hey, this person's has wealth and fame and, you know, a lot of resources that a lot of people feel like, oh, if I had that, I wouldn't have any problems. And so to hear you as the wife of an NBA star talking about these struggles, um, mm-hmm. I'm wondering, do you remember any times specifically when you were in Denver, you know, as this NBA wife, but privately struggling? Yeah, um, <laughs> I remember a couple of times and things when I was in Denver um, because that's actually where our oldest daughter was born mm-hmm. and I had her at Rose Medical Center and um, I remember going to the game you know the outside of parents you know you get dressed and shoot back then I thought I was cute doing something or whatever. <laughs> so, I'm sure you were cute <laughs> so I'm going to the game you know okay let me look like this be cute be nice but one thing that was always attractive outside of anything within me, and I'm glad I can stand and say that now, is my personality. Mm -hmm. Because that's what allows me to have long sustainability in relationships that I still have up until this day. But anyway, I say that to say, I remember being in the penthouse 
with my oldest daughter, Demi, who was a newborn or baby infant, three months crying. Like I had no family there. Mm. Men had made the decision for me to have her out there, which was fine. I know that's what we decided. That's what I decided. But he was always on a roll. And it was just, I was really sad. I just, I had a daughter, but didn't know my identity. Yeah. Okay, I have to care for you, but who am I? You know, I have, yeah, I, I, I was suffering. Like, it was a lot of dark days where I just cried and I masked it by um, doing and giving and helping and making sure JR was okay, making sure um, Demi was okay. She was being fed, but in the, in the background, I was invisible to myself. And that all came from me not knowing my worth and just mentally gone. He's here. He's there. It's just, it's, 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 it's a bit much. And I can totally relate to you. Um, I have recently celebrated my 10th anniversary here in Colorado. Um, but as I as I've told many, um, you know, I moved here with the five month old and, you know, I was married first child, both of us first time parents, my husband and I, and we did not have a lot of help. In fact, basically no help <laughs> for four years. And uh, a lot of times um, people particularly moms are afraid to acknowledge, you know, how tough it is and how isolating it is to, you know, care for a child and not yeah. have backup support or just friendships to lean on or people to decompress with. So I can totally understand it. Uh, I, tr I try really hard now that I've, you know, obviously been established 10 years in Colorado and have mm -hmm. built the village. It's great, but you never want to really forget what that's like. And, and I think that, you know, that kind of seems to be the core of your message is that we need to speak up, we need to reach out for help. And we need to let people know that we need support. Yes. And, and be okay with your I'm not okay. What did it mean to you to be in Denver, and stand at that podium in a room filled with people listening to your story? What did that mean to you? Wow. Initially, I didn't um, I did not realize the magnitude or the impact of what really was happening or transpiring because I'm kind of like a I don't know if I'm, you want to call me like a bird, like la 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 la. <laughs> and because I just go, go, go and do, do, do. But a lot of times I have a problem sitting in my accomplishments. So I did not understand the magnitude of what all transpired until after. But when I was able to receive the emails and reflect on even just being able to bring my daughter, because my oldest daughter was there. She had never been back to Denver to see where she was born, where she was from. Wow. So for me to be able, I'm getting chills and goosebumps. Wow. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> for me to be able to make the sound decision for her to go back to see where she was born so she will not have questions like I did. Hmm. So that's what it started as. It started as a trip for my oldest daughter turning 13. That was her birthday gift, me taking her to see where she was born and riding her around the streets of Denver, of you know, Colorado, just different areas, the Pepsi Center, all of that. That's what it started off as, and it unfolded into the whole event. But me sitting here talking to you about it now is like the magnitude of what transpired that weekend, I cannot put it into words because I broke so many chains. Like God answered so many prayers for me to be able to just make that leap and fly out there for one thing and look what it turned into.
because he knew my heart. Now, did you take her on Colfax? <laughs> yes, I did. I took her. Did you tell her it was the longest street in America? In America. She was like, Mom, no way. <laughs> and then it snowed <laughs> while we were there. It was perfect. It was perfect. And then she was there at the event. That was her first time seeing me in action. Wow. It was unbelievable. It was unbelievable. It was unreal. And just to be back there to represent like, hey, guys, I love it here just as much. You know, my program is going to be running here soon. I'm coming back to do a community baby shower. Yeah. It's <laughs> well, we would love to I'm have you back. We would love to have yes, you back. I, you know, Russell I Wilson am. and Sierra's here now. <laughs> Yeah, they are. How crazy is that? I know. Who would have imagined? <laughs> I know. And they do so much to put a community as well. So that's a blessing for them to be out there with you guys. Well, before we go, we have to ask, how is Dakota now? Mm-mm-mm. Let me tell you something. <laughs> I was just downstairs with Dakota showing her how to properly give her dogs treats and make them sit. Wow. Um. Dakota is meeting her milestones. When I say she is truly a butterfly that has blossomed right before my eyes, she's now putting together two to three words like mommy, mommy milk and stuff like that. Like she's been trying to talk vocally and verbally within the last six months. And that's just one more thing that I do want to say really quickly before we end. Dakota is doing unbelievable. I'll take every minute of what I get to experience with her today. But I did not notice a drastic change in her growth until I changed. Until I broke the shackles and barriers off of my life and made a healthy, sound decision to treat myself better, to do better, to get help, to be in therapy, and to correct my mental instability is when I seen her soar off. Wow. Well, that seems to be the perfect message as we wrap up you know, there is help, there are resources, and um, it's for you to tap into to grow and reach these milestones, just like absolutely. Dakota has, right? Yes, absolutely. It all starts with self. starts with self. When you wake up every day, who do you look at in the mirror? If you even look in the mirror, yourself. Shirley, thank you so much for sharing You're your welcome. story and your journey and your children's journey and your family with us on Colorado Matters. Yes, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate you. God bless. Shirley Smith, the former wife of NBA star and former Denver Nugget, J.R. Smith. We spoke in August. We were sharing her story as part of Black History Month. In honor of her miracle baby, Dakota, Shirley Smith founded the nonprofit My Coda Bear to support other parents with babies in the NICU. Finally today, this weekend was something of a musical homecoming for Jill Sobiel. The Denver-born, L.A.-based singer-songwriter made her first big splash with audiences in 1995 with the queer-themed single, I Kissed a Girl. So we compared notes. We had a drink, we had a smoke. She took off her overcoat. I kissed a girl. This weekend, Sobule returned to Denver for a pair of sold-out shows that made her feel right at home. Literally. She performed in the house she grew up in, and it all started with a visit to the old hilltop neighborhood. 
a couple years ago, I was just walking past my block and I decided I was going to just for the hell of it, knock on the door to see if, you know, the inside, just to see if they still had the avocado shag carpeting, which I was so disappointed someone took that out. So I knocked at the door and the woman answered and she knew who I was. And she had heard that I used to live there. Turns out the two have a mutual friend who hosts house concerts for a live music series called Five Points Live. And so we already booked the house concert at his place. And he says, what do you think about if we did it at your old house? And I thought that would be uh, amazing and crazy. Jill Sobu has been busy revisiting her coming of age in Denver. She just wrapped a successful off-Broadway run of her autobiographical musical, F. Seventh Grade. You know, Freud had it wrong that it wasn't the first week or month or year that uh, affects your development. It's seventh grade. Despite the middle school blues that the show has fun with, Sobu still thinks fondly of her time growing up here. You know, it's all you know. I look back at it now. And I think, like, what an amazing place to grow up. It was hilltop. It was like, you look out, there's that wall of mountains, you know, beautiful. And so you can be miserable in paradise, you know. Singer-songwriter Jill Sobule. Her musical makes another run in New York later this year, and she hopes to someday bring it to Denver for her hometown crowd. It was a terrible for joining us today and to the Colorado Matters team. Tyler Bender, Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Rachel Estabrook, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Chris Ketchum, Pedro Lumbraño, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner. And I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. You're with CPR News and KRCC. KRCC.